This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 247 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Coraline Ada Emke. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Go check out RubyRemoteConf.com. Uh, this week, we have a special guest, and that's Ray Hightower. Good morning, everyone. So, Ray, you haven't been on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ray Hightower. As you said, I run a software company called Wisdom Group. And my team and I, we run the Chicago Ruby Users Group and a couple of conferences. We run Windy City Rails now in its ninth year and a brand new conference called Windy City Things that's all about the Internet of Things. Oh, that sounds fun. I'm actually going to be out in Chicago this summer. So I'll have to hook up and we'll grab lunch, you and Coraline and anyone else out there. Absolutely. With uh, Chicago Ruby, we're doing six events every month. So oh, certainly wow. you could come hang out there or we could grab, uh, you know, coffee, drinks, lunch, whatever. There's a, a lot of options here. Lots of activity, man. Yep. Now that I'm talking about it, I know people are going to wonder when. It's the week after the 4th of July. I'm going to be out there for podcast movement. And I usually try and book a little bit of time, get in the day before and uh, leave in the afternoon, the day after. So I have plenty of time to uh, recuperate because I kind of go crazy at conferences and meet as many people as I can and spend a bunch of time. So, so yeah, I will, so that, that's I will get I'm mad doing. at you and take it personally if we don't hang out. Chuck. So yeah, we should. Saying. You're a networker. You're a true networker. Oh, it wears me out, but it's a lot of fun. Yep. All right. Well, uh, we brought you on to talk about the Parallela. And uh, I think we all looked at it. Do you want to give us a quick overview of what it is? Sure. I'll, I'll share a little bit about Parallela. Parallela is a single board computer, roughly the size of the other single board computers that are out there on the market, roughly the size of a Raspberry Pi or a BeagleBone Black, roughly the size of a credit card. You know, and the difference between the Parallela and the other uh, single board computers is that it has 18 cores. 
So it's a great way if you're a developer and you want to explore parallelism and some other things. I'll talk about some other features, you know, maybe later on in the in the podcast. But if you especially want to explore parallelism and learn that, it's a great way to do it. And it's a it's a very uh, inexpensive device for uh, learning that kind of stuff. Now, you mentioned the Raspberry Pi, which I think mine has two cores in it, maybe. Yes. Um. So why 18 cores? Oh yeah, why you know? Because uh, you know, if <laughs> why overkill, right? Uh, or is advantage- obviously better. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. right. I mean, eighteen lane highway, two lane. Hi- no, anyway. And sometimes you know, there's the law of diminishing returns at some point, right? The reason we wanted a device with eighteen cores, the reason my team at Wisdom Group, the reason we started exploring it, is because we began working with some clients. Uh, some computer engineers, some high-end electrical engineers, computer engineers that are designing and developing and building the next generation of supercomputers. And they're working with machines that have a 100,000 cores or a million cores. And we wanted to, in the work that we do for them, we're not going to be at their level. They're high-end PhD engineers doing some awesome stuff. And what we do want to do, though, is we want to know enough about what they do so that we can serve them better. I, I think about the, the metaphor I like to use with this is uh, it's as if they're medical researchers studying the latest uh, diseases or the deadliest diseases that affect humans. And then they hired uh, Wisdom Group to build microscopes. You know, w- we don't necessarily understand everything they're looking at through the microscope. But the more we understand about what they want to see and what they want to examine, the better we can uh, serve them. So, Ray, you're um, you're you're primarily a web developer. Um, is that right? Yes, yes. We do web development. We do some mobile, but mostly web. So, I mean, what was it like for you to dip into the hardware world as a web developer? That's normally something like, you know, we don't really care about bare metal very much. Oh, yeah, that is so true, right? Because it's all abstracted away. You, you've got the layers, you've got the OS, and then you've got the language and all of that. A lot of my background is in hardware. One of my One of my jobs... Goodness, it was over 30 years ago. I used to work in a digital lab in Colorado a long time ago where I was writing assembler level software for a bunch of electrical engineers who were designing hardware. And I really got into it. You know, all the things with, with the gates and, you know, Boolean algebra has not changed in over a hundred years. I've always liked the hardware. I've always been interested in it. And then I, I also have the attention span of a two-year-old. So I bounce around back and forth between all this stuff. Uh, but for any web developer, you know, for, for us, uh, it, it's one more thing to learn and one more thing to explore. And, and it's always interesting to do something new and different, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, you know, one other cool thing to get, you know, more to your point, Caroline, the, the, um, this blew me away uh, when I first learned in Ruby that you could do state machines. You know, I, I think there was a gem called Access State Machine. I don't know if that's yeah, still, ASM still around. Yes, 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 still around. Okay, uh, blew me away because when I learned about state machines, we did them all in hardware. We did them all with uh, with gates. This was back in you know like the early to mid eighties and that type of thing. So it it blows me away that now. The hardware is fast enough that you can implement a state machine in software. So they, 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 they inform each other and they feed each other. And, you know, the more you learn about one, the more you learn about the other. And that's, uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I remember doing state machines in college and I was an electrical engineering major. And so it was again done in hardware and you would wire. Yeah. Like you said, you'd wire up the gates and yeah, you would make it so that those gates would basically trigger the logic to get to the next stage. 
Very cool to know you have a double E degree. That is, you know, I, I took some double E classes. That's a tough curriculum. So much respect to you for oh, that. I, I changed my major. I went into computer engineering. So then we got into okay. chip design and stuff. But yeah, 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 the initial stuff was all gates. And the way that you build out your chips is all based on that same logic. I mean, you're laying out transistors to form gates that form basically logic circuits and memory circuits. Yeah. You know what? Since, since you started talking about logic circuits and memory circuits, I should talk about one other feature of Parallela that I haven't covered in any of my presentations or any blog articles yet. I'm in the middle of writing a blog article about it. Parallela includes a field programmable gate array. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, and, you know, this is on this device, you know, and, and I'm, you know, we spent uh, we've spent the past several months, you know, exploring the parallel aspects of Parallela, you know, the uh, but the the FPGA. What's so exciting about that is any logic that you can implement with gates, you know, NAND gates or gates and gates, whatever you can implement in an FPGA field programmable gate array. And since it is field programmable, you write code to implement the gates. So you can change this, the, the configuration of this hardware using software. And the reason why that's so cool is anything that executes on, as you know, anything that executes on hardware is going to be faster than the equivalent, uh, the equivalent task executed in software. The, the challenge with software is that you got all these layers of the stack you have to go through. First, you go to the hardware, then you go to your OS, you know, Linux, Windows, whatever. Then you go to your, maybe you go to your interpreter if you're doing Ruby. Then you go to your application code and then the libraries are called and all that. And some decision is made. And then you turn around and go back through that same stack to give the feedback through the hardware to, you know, the, the output in response to the input. So all those layers, you go through the stack. And so software is slower. Hardware, what's so awesome is that your speed is only limited by the progression of the single signal through the silicon. So it's so much faster. And, and then the drawback, though, is FPGAs are probably tougher to program. You know, one reason we have high level languages is because it's easier for us as humans to wrap our heads around them, you know, but, you know, trade offs with anything. So, you know, when you mentioned Gates, I said, I have to mention the FPGA and the Parallela, and we're working on some articles around that. The first article around that uh, should be out early next week, because we're, we're putting some stuff together around that. That's really exciting. Now I really want one. <laughs> yeah, yes, but, yes. But yeah, I mean, I remember doing homework in college and basically programming logic progression through uh, FPGAs. And so you'd load the program in, it would line up all the all the gates, and then you would send your signals through it. And I mean, that was debugging is you send the signals in one end and you see what you get out the other and it better be right. But yeah, yeah. And, and my stuff was never right the first time. (laughs) And you know what was so cool? I mean, you mentioned doing that in college. There's so much, you know, all of you have done this, you know, we've done this professionally, but you know, in college too, college was the first time where we really got into it, where you're staying up and you're working on, and maybe you're, you're, you're programming your FPGA, or maybe you're working with a breadboard and a bunch of discrete integrated circuits and you're plugging them into the breadboard and you, you got your pull up resistors and your LEDs or whatever. And there's so much camaraderie that's built up around troubleshooting. You know, it's like the shared misery. It's the same camaraderie we have when, you know, when we're writing software together, right? You know, this, this shared, you know, doing this battle. You know, this battle against the problem and our brains come together. And, and it's so cool that when multiple people are working together, that, you know, it's almost like the team gets smarter when we're all working together. That That's so cool. It's, Absolutely. 
I think we totally learn best when we're learning together, not learning from someone who's way ahead of us, but learning from someone who's right next to us. Yes, yes. And then you build connection and you build hardware and you build uh, knowledge in your brain all at the same time. Oh, it's so cool. And you know what's so, here is something that's weird and you've probably experienced this. Sometimes you're working on a team and you're thinking through some problem and it's almost like there's some type of telepathic connection sometime, right? Okay, now you're looking at me like I'm crazy. All right, okay. (laughs) No, no, I agree. it, It is, it's because you have so much shared context that you can you can find the solution together and sometimes you look at each other and it's almost like you transmitted it yes that's okay cool i'm not nuts thank you (laughs) way to save me jess (laughs) i am i was thinking how interesting it was just listening um ray to you and chuck getting nostalgic about hardware hacking it's sort of taken as a given that if you're in software you have a background in hardware and i don't think that's universally true but um, I'm kind of interested in, in knowing what that meant for you in your in your progression as an engineer. You think the having the hardware to begin with informed the way you program, or is it just like you were just had a general interest in technology, or how would you explain that? You know, that's a good question. I mean, does does the hardware background inform software? I I think in my case it does. At the same time, there's some cool stuff happening in the software field right now that I've never seen before. You know, I've been, I've been in and out of software development for, you know, 30 plus years, you know, started in 82. So I've been in and out of it. And, you know, in the old days, you know, it was like you said, Coraline, it was almost taken as a given that you had some background in hardware before you started doing software. But what's happening now? There are a lot of people coming to software development who have professional skills in other areas. And so, their experience as software developers is informed by that background in a way that's different from the way my hardware background is informed. You know, a great example, one of the organizers on the Chicago Ruby team, a guy named Doug Harmon, and I'm trying to get him to give a presentation about this, but he keeps telling me no. But Doug Harmon spent 40 years as an investment professional, selling financial instruments and financial tools to people and families who want to invest their money. And then he decided that, you know, he saw a need in his industry. So he went and began learning Ruby on Rails. You know, this guy's in his late 60s, early 70s, began learning Ruby on Rails and has gotten pretty good at it, has written an app that meets the needs of his colleagues in the financial services industry. And what's remarkable about Doug is He's using his background in a totally different profession, you know, four decades of experience to inform what he does as a software developer. And the code that he's writing is highly informed by that. And it, it's very, it fits very much the needs of the people that, that he's serving. We you know with the app that he's writing. So I think, you know, bottom line to, to answer your question, I think no matter what you do, it's going to inform what you do as a developer. And, you know, I never would have thought this, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this and it's, it's remarkable to be remarkable to me that you can come from another profession or a totally different field and come to software development with a new take and a new view. And you're adding value to the software development position, uh, profession as a result. And I think that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to point that out for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, coming from a non-traditional background myself, um, I want to support other people who, like you're, you're saying, have come either switch careers or coming from a different field or who's interested not to start out being software related. The other thing I think that we kind of are in danger of doing sometimes is 
putting people who were hardware hackers up on a pedestal and, you know, kind of saying it's the no true Scotsman thing. Like you're not a real geek unless you actually played with hardware. So I didn't feel like that's where we were going with that conversation, but I did want to point out that not everyone has that background. It's really cool. If you do, and a lot of really important people have had that background, but not everyone does. And we should celebrate, you know, wherever we've come from and however we arrived in software development and the impact that we can make today. Yeah, yeah agree. Yeah. I just want right. to back that up. I mean, it does help when I run into issues with, say, memory and memory management or, you know, figuring out exactly how, you know, the floating point arithmetic actually happens. You know, sometimes it helps out there. But for the most part, software is just another medium that I use to get work done. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't inform every day. I mean, it does. So the the education that I got about how things work and how processes work and how things progress from one state to another and those kinds of things that I learned in college, those definitely help. So the hardware background, but that's more about thinking about problems and not necessarily about having a background in hardware. And the hardware direct knowledge really only comes in when I'm looking at, okay, how is this actually being executed down in the core? Or how is this actually being thought about here, there, or somewhere else? And otherwise, it just it doesn't make a huge difference for me. Right. The best yeah. teams that I've been on had people from all the perspectives. You mm -hmm. have someone who's a performance geek and someone who has a good background in the same industry the users are in and someone who's got something else completely random because our software is about communicating with computers and also with people mm -hmm. and frankly computers are the easy part yep yes absolutely but, it, but on the other hand if like uh, chuck and ray were saying a little bit of familiarity with hardware can go a long way in giving you a vocabulary and sort of a perspective. And that's kind of where the parallela comes in as a source of play and learning, right? Oh, yes. And I'm glad you used the word play because, you know, I, I talked about why we started working with parallela and I talked about our clients and what we're doing. But bottom line, I love playing with this stuff. <laughs> I just, <laughs> it's a lot of fun, you know, even when I give an example. You know, yesterday I was experimenting, you know, with the, the, getting the whole FB, FPGA thing going. And, you know, there's, there are a bunch of gotchas and I try to write in the blog articles, you know, where the gotchas, you know, I like to say, you know, I, I write about the gotchas that got me so they don't get you. And even in doing that, it's like wrestling or it's like doing any kind of sport. You know, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's play and it's learning and all of that stuff. You know, that, that's what I would say about it. So what are you learning then? Because a lot of this play is usually, I want to learn more about this, or I want to do more with that, or I want to understand these principles better. So for you, what are you learning from playing with Parallela? You know, remarkably, some of the things I'm learning, I didn't expect. Like, I'm learning a lot more about Linux that I, I didn't know and how, how Linux behave, even, even coming down to things like uh, setting up partitions, because... One of the big barriers to people getting started with Parallela is just getting the thing set up. The documentation, and this, you know, I've, I've spoken to engineers at the company at Parallela, you know, they'll tell you in a second that when they write a lot of their documentation, they skip over a bunch of steps. They're just doing stuff, and they're skipping up over a bunch of steps, and they're skipping over prerequisites that are required. And I'm learning about a lot of things that are beyond parallelism that are different. An example from yesterday is... 
you know, working with the FPGA, you know, the, the official instructions tell you the steps you go through to set up the FPGA. But what they skipped over is that there are some dependencies you need to install in the parallel of first, you know, like a, a library called Verilog. That is a hardware description uh, language. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So you're familiar with that. Yes. Verilog didn't exist when I was involved in hardware, right? You know, we used graph paper and pencils. You know? So, so I'm learning a lot about, you know, things like Verilog, hardware description languages. I'm learning about dependencies, you know, dis- dependency relationships in code, you know, uh, which determines whether or not the, the code that you want to paralyze is in fact paralyzable. Well, this is something that uh, we talked about a few days ago, the difference between concurrency and parallelism. Bluntly, when I first bought Parallela, you know what I told people? I said, yeah, I'm buying a Parallela so I can learn about concurrency. But those are, you know, those are two different things. I should share with you for the show notes. There's a video that Rob Pike, one of the creators of the Go programming language, he, uh, his video, uh, it's titled Concurrency is Not Parallelism where he talks about the difference between the two. So the biggest things that I'm learning are things that I thought I knew, but really I don't know. That's interesting. I'd be really curious to hear that because, I mean, in my head, they're kind of the same thing too, right? You have parallel processes, and so you can do concurrent programming because they're running at the same time. Yeah, that's that, that's what I, I thought, and I, I like the way Pike describes it. I, I've gotten to the point where I kind of summarize it my own way, but Pike does a much better job in the video. But if you look at concurrency versus parallelism, an example of concurrency would be if you think back to early personal computers where you had one processor and you had an operating system going through this event loop, which, you know, just an infinite loop that's going through and looking at the behavior of all of the hardware attached to this processor. It's looking at, you know, has a key been pressed on the keyboard? Has the mouse moved? Has a button been pressed on the mouse? You know, it's looking at all the, uh, the inputs and it's looking at them one at a time over and over again through this infinite loop, through this event loop that, you know, it's looking for all of these events. And to humans, because the computer is doing this very, very quickly, it looks like these things are happening concurrently. But when, you know, if we're writing operating systems, you know, if you look at, you take an operating systems course, this single processor machine is only looking at these things once at a time. So mm-hmm. concurrency is, an illusion. I'm the only person that I know that's been saying it, that concurrency is an illusion. And if I'm saying it wrong, I invite the internet to correct me. Oh, boy. That's a dangerous talk. So so I, I took those uh, operating systems classes that you're talking about. And I mean, I remember writing interrupt handlers. And yeah, it, it works exactly as you say. The other thing is, is that it does feel concurrent when it does the round robin scheduling that we're pretty used to, where it stops for whatever reason or it runs the program for a certain length of time. And then it says, OK, who needs a turn now? And then it runs it, you know, and so it feels like it's doing multiple things at once, where in reality on each core, it's just giving each one a time slot and making it work through it. Yes, it's slicing up the time. And it's yeah, that that's a, that's exactly what it's doing. So that's what's co- what concurrency is doing. Yes. With parallelism, you actually have multiple cores that are doing things at the same time. And a good example in pretty much all of our laptops, I don't think there's a laptop sold today that doesn't have some type of video accelerator. Mm-hmm. And if you look, you know, the laptop I use is three years old. I use a three-year-old MacBook Pro. And on this, and I didn't know this until I started researching it, you go into about this Mac and dig into what's going on with the hardware. The NVIDIA video card on this MacBook Pro has 384 cores. 
I'm like, wow, you know, who, who would have thought, right? You know, when I, you know, you think back to what a supercomputer used to be, 300 cores, that would, you know, that'd be like millions of dollars or whatever. So it blows you away. But that's, that's an example. Uh, parallelism is happening there because you have, have all of these things happening at once. So that's a distinction. That's a, those are definitions that I didn't understand. And in experimenting with parallela, you know, my team and I were getting more to the point where we can grok that, you know, internally, right? And, uh, it's going to help us with other things that we're writing. Um, for example, one of the things we're doing on Parallela, you know, getting Ruby, getting Rails up and running on that. And wouldn't it be cool if there was some type of application where it interacts with the humans via the web interface? Cause the web is a wonderful place for human interaction. And on the back end, you've got whatever parallel processing is going on. Say if you need to control some sort of robot or whatever. Wait, you said you're running Rails on the Parallela? Yeah, yeah, because here's what's going on. I, I mentioned the 18 cores, so let me back up for a second. Uh, the Parallela has two ARM cores and then 16 of what they call Epiphany cores, uh, and it treats the two ARM core. The two ARM cores kind of behave like a Raspberry Pi, right? So if you ignored the 16 uh, Epiphany cores, their their uh, their risk reduced instruction set computing cores, if you ignore those, then you just have a Raspberry Pi. Just as you can run Rails and Ruby on a Raspberry Pi, you can run Rails and Ruby on uh, a Parallela. So yeah, and so does one the Raspberry Pi have one or two ARM processors? Yes, it it depends on which model Raspberry Pi. Like Chuck has a Raspberry Pi with two ARM cores on it. Yes, I have the one and the two, and I don't remember which ones have what. So. Yeah. So how do all those other cores help you in Rails? Well, that is one of the things that we're experimenting with. I hope to have better answers for you on that. So far, everything that we've done with the parallel cores, with the uh, Epiphany cores, we've done in C because that's what all the documentation is. And that's how we're, you know, mm-hmm. wrapping our head around and that type of thing. But one of the things that we're working toward is the idea that you've got your, your web interface that's facing the humans. And Ruby can call C programs. Ruby can, Ruby can communicate with C programs. So it makes sense to me that we can do something with the epiphany cores. And we have to come up with a, um, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're coming up with some, uh, demos. We're playing with some demos about how we do that. I'll, uh, I'm speaking at a, a conference called Confu in a couple of weeks in Montreal where, uh, where I'll share some of that. So we have, we have some interesting demos there, and now the challenge is figuring out which one we want to do, which one's going to appeal most to people that, that people would be most interested in. That's cool. It's it's interesting because we perennially hear the issues with Ruby right, where it has the gill, so it can't be do native thread, so it can't take advantage of uh, multiple processors. So how do we get around that? It's interesting that you're working around that with C. I'm, I'm wondering just... If there are other better ways, I mean, we've seen stuff with the actor model, for example, where, you know, maybe you could do that or do stuff with uh, remote procedure calls or some or of the J-Ruby. other. Or JRuby. Yeah, possibly. We tried last year. Was it last year? Maybe it was last, maybe at least six months ago, maybe about six months ago, Zach Briggs and I were, we were at a hack night, a Chicago Ruby hack night, and we were working on getting Rubinius going on the Parallela. That was longer than six months ago. This may have been a year ago, a year, a little bit longer. We were working on getting Rubinius going on Parallela, and we ran into a bunch of issues like the standard shell on Parallela is something called TC shell that I'd never heard of. It, and, you know, I'm accustomed to Bash, you know, coming from a Mac environment. I'm accustomed to Bash and 
we use Bash on Ubuntu. And so we weren't able to get Rubinius though. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about JRuby there. Like you said, Jessica, you know, maybe JRuby. There's some other options that we're looking at. But the first one, you know, like you kind of go in stages that where, you know, our first stage was to do everything in C because that's where all the documentation is. And that's where we can start to grok just the basic, you know, the, the foundational idea of parallelism. And then I think, well, okay, uh, it's cool if that there's, you know, maybe you have a web interface and, and maybe what's going on in the back end that's communicating with C, uh, and, and, and your, the parallel portions of your application are running in C. So your web app is talking to this C app, the C app's running in parallel. An example of that, like, here's one thing that we're playing with now, like the examples that I've done in several presentations recently was, showing how prime numbers can be calculated very rapidly when you do them in parallel. When you split the work up among 16 cores as opposed to just trying to do everything on one, you know, one or two cores. And, you know, so maybe we have something where there's an app, a web application that needs prime numbers calculated or, or needs some image processing done. There's, there are Im image processing examples because image processing, that's an application that can be readily divided up into tasks that are parallelizable. So Ray, we shared a stage together um, at Madison Ruby last year, and you gave a talk about the parallel, and you talked in detail about the um, the experiment you ran with generating or with finding prime numbers. Can you talk about what that process was like for your team? Oh yeah, sure. It was one of the things that we wanted to run to see if this, this idea of, uh, of parallelism would work. And it's not just, you know, uh, one of the things we were fortunate, we brought on board an intern last year. His name is Thomas Malthouse, real bright young man who helped us with a lot of that, who knows C and was, uh, very instrumental in, in helping to get that running. And what we're doing, you know, is the source code for that, you know, in fact, all the, everything about Parallela and really most of the single board computers I'm working with. Everything's open source. If you want to see the source code, if you go to github.com slash Parallela, and I think the subdirectory is Parallela Examples, you'll see all of the all of the examples or a lot of the examples that we were working with. And we made some modifications just to to make them work more with uh, with what we're doing. But yeah, it's uh, the examples are right there. We with uh, with the what was remarkable, what was fun with doing the the prime number examples, when we first started working with that, we were getting inconsistent results between the calculations done in serial versus the calculations done in parallel. You know, like we'd get one set of numbers on serial and one, and what was that's going not on with that? Well, yeah. well, because because what's so funny, if you have an off by one error on a single core machine, you have an off by one error. But if you have sixteen cores, you have an off by sixteen error. Oh so. wow. <laughs> So, I mean, bottom line is, you know, so it was kind of fun, you know, wrestling with that kind of stuff, you know, off by one errors are multiplied by the number of cores, right? and, you know, things like that. And then you have to look at dependencies. And one of the reasons we wanted to look at something that is basic, like looking at prime numbers is because you can wrap your head around the idea of calculating prime numbers, just put that in your brain, hold that in your in your brain. And we use Ruby as a way to think about the algorithm that we wanted to use, right? Just because, you know, real quick feedback loop, right? So that's, that's what we did. So the process, it actually took a couple of days to come up with, with something that worked 
the way we wanted to. We based it on the examples that are, like I said, in the, the GitHub repo for Parallel. We based it on that. And, you know, we added a few things just so that when the results are printed out, you can see exactly what's going on. And so that people on the sa- stage know what's going on and which core is doing which calculations and all of that. But yeah, you asked about what the experience was like. It was, uh, you know, it was troubleshooting. And I'm glad we started off doing something relatively basic like prime numbers because it, it's easier to grok. Sure. Some of the other examples that we've experimented with, like there's something called the from physics, I guess it's astrophysics. Yeah, I guess it's astrophysics, something called the N-body problem. And it may apply to other areas of physics, but it's the idea that you've got these planets and stars in orbit around each other. And if you have thousands of them, how do they behave together? Because they're in orbit around each other, but not really. They're really in orbit around a common center of mass. And that common center of mass is calculated through like, you know, summations, you know, like, uh, vector summations, you know, uh, vectors in three dimensions. And, and so parallel, uh, the parallel examples includes an, you know, an n-body example, n-body problem example, which is really cool. Uh, there's a Mandelbrot example. I'm still wrapping my head around, you know, some of the uses for Mandelbrot plots and all that stuff, but you know, it's cool to explore those. So that's what we do. Very cool. So the uh, parallel is pretty approachable as a hobbyist. If someone was like interested, interested just in playing around with parallel computing, they could like, how much does it cost? And what's the, what's the real, what do you, what do you need to do to get started? Okay. Yeah. If you want to get started with parallel, uh, yeah, you can buy it on Amazon. There are two versions. There's a version that that's called the server version that just includes the ethernet and power and a place for the SD card to go in. No HDMI, no USB. And that's like 99 bucks. I prefer the version that includes the HDMI and USB reason being, you know, you can SSH into it, but you kind of, I think when you're starting off with it, and even after you've started off with it, I'm more comfortable with working with Parallel and when I can attach a video device to it and, and attach a keyboard mouse, you know, uh, directly to it. And that's 150 bucks. And they're avail- they're selling them on Amazon now. So I'd take a look uh, there. And the hardest part is when you're just getting started with it is making sure that the SD card you need with the operating system, make sure that's burned correctly. And I ran into a bunch of headaches with that. And after I got past those obstacles, I put those together in an article that's called Parallel a Quick Start Guide with Gotchas. And that's at, you know, my blog at rayhightower.com. And I, I included a bunch of pictures in there because the documentation and I was going to say the hardest part is like the documentation is written by hardware engineers who know the device intimately. And as you know, if you know something intimately, it's harder to write about it when you're introducing someone to it. Right. So there's there's sure. steps skip some time. Right. And it's not malicious. I mean, it's it's good stuff. But, you know, there's steps skipped and all of that. And they'll they'll really do that. But I tried to include some of these steps that are skipped in in each of the articles and in all of the you know, in addition, in addition to that first intro guide, the subsequent articles, I try to include some things that tell you about steps like even, you know, another parallel article that I have on my personal blog, uh, other ones, uh, when we talk about going through the examples, you know how in the Ruby community, if you're, you're using a, a, a gem or you're starting someone's app, if you just, if you just get on a project, you know, they're always in the readme file, there are detailed instructions on how to get the app running on your own machine. And those instructions are, are always good and correct. 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, every problem. time. In fact, most people focus so much on the documentation, they forget to do functionality. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. And, you know, nobody, when people miss things in documentation, it's never malicious. It's just, you know, we all get busy. And then we end up doing, Kathy Sierra said this so well. She said, has, uh, has this acronym, COIC, for clear only if known. C-O-I-K, COIC. Clear Love that. Only- that's yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, it just fits. So so the hardest part of getting uh, uh, started with Parallela is dealing with the quake factor. The forum is pretty good. There are other people, you know, just like me, you know, other people all over the world who are experimenting with this, who when they run into gotchas, they put their info in the forum. Uh, that's at uh, Parallela. I think it's forum.parallela.org. Or if you go to Parallela.org, there's a link to the forum. You know, sometimes links change and all that stuff. So the hardest thing is really making sure you get the ST card burned. And I try to, in my guide, to include a lot of that. Actually, as I look at my guide, there are a few things in my guide that I know I need to update. So it's due for an update, but I'm running around working on FPGAs now. So yeah, there you go. I'm guilty, right? And then the other thing is you need to, you know, make sure that you either have a fan or you use the, uh, the heat sink. They're now shipping the Parallela with a heat sink because it gets hot. It's the hottest of all of the single board computers that I've worked with. You know, I've worked with, you know, the, you know, Raspberry Pi, BeagleBone, all of those. So it gets hot. So yes, to to answer your question, (laughs) after that long, long answer, to answer your question, uh, I would look at some of the guides that are out there with, you know, details and photos and screenshots and all that. And once you get that SD card up and running, you'll find that any documentation you find online that deals with Ubuntu Linux is helpful with the Parallela also. So there's a lot of documentation that may or may not be labeled exactly like that. Okay, cool. How about yeah. you? Are, are the three of you, any of you planning to start uh, exploring this? You're all so busy. I look at all of you. I see what you're doing out in the community. And all. You're all so busy doing all kinds. Of, you're flying all over and, and speaking and doing stuff. What, what are your plans like with uh, single board computers or parallel? What do you think you'll be doing? I played a lot with Arduino years ago. I haven't played with Raspberry Pi or the Blackbone or anything like that. When my daughter was little, we did a lot of hardware hacking because I was trying to get her interested in programming electronics. But now she's all grown and doesn't want anything to do with any of that. So it's a little harder for me to be a hobbyist with that stuff now. But I'm interested. Like, I, I had a lot of fun with the Arduino, and I think I could do a lot with, you know, I've thought about, like, Raspberry Pis for, um, you know, Sonic Pi. I thought that was really fascinating. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, there's a chance I would play with it. Yeah. I think all of you would be great with it. You, you've all got uh, experience in other areas that would it, it would make the community stronger. The, the parallel community is dominated by hardware people right now, hardware people who do some software. But when I look at stuff that you're doing, you know, like, you know, Jessica, every time I look at you, I think about a talk you did years ago about Git. And, and it was <laughs> like, so that, yeah, Git happens. And you were doing a bunch of those. And then I was like, yeah, it's so cool. And I think about all the areas, like all three of you, all the things that you've done in software, the parallel, the parallela and the parallel computing, computing in general, uh, community in general could use, you know, a lot of your insights. Um, cause like I said, a lot of people are doing, um, are hardware, uh, engineers who do a little bit of software on the side. So 
Uh, there's a point you made, Ray, about how the documentation was made by engineers who know the hardware intimately, which makes them the worst people to write the documentation for someone who doesn't know anything about hardware. And then you've come along and other people who've made guides that are more accessible to people with your backgrounds. And you do have some hardware background. Uh, this is an opportunity for anyone who doesn't know anything about hardware, but would like to acquire the vocabulary. There's a need for people who know very little about this to write about it. But the less you know, the more you can contribute to the community by learning a little bit and then making that bit accessible to more people who come from the same lack of background that you have. And that's, um, that's something I give a talk on getting started in open source. And, um, one of the recommendations I make is that people start with writing documentation because not only is it a great way to familiarize yourself with someone else's source code, but no one seems to like writing documentation. So if you come in and write documentation for someone else's project, you are instantly a hero. Yes. Yeah, and, and you're, you're <laughs> yes. a hero to everybody who uses that documentation because if you were confused by something, oh my gosh, so many other people are going to be confused by that and you can really help. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's, 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 it's good citizenship. Yeah, the, the the point you just made, Jessica, is right on. It's like it's right on. It, it's uh, it's like if you have a, a background away from that, away from the device, you can become a bridge. And you know, we need a whole lot of bridges at once. You know, um, maybe we're not individually bridges. Maybe we're individual girders or something, and together we form a bridge. I don't know. Right? You, you get the metaphor. I'm still constructing the metaphor, but you you know, <laughs> you know, you're constructing your bridge metaphor with girders. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's riveting, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, you know, that's just what we need. More puns in computer science. Thank you yes. for this. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we have to convert them all to acronyms. I'm going to be busy for the rest of the week. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so my question is, what exactly are you doing with the Parallela? Because it seems like a lot of people are playing with it. They're figuring out what it can do. But are people actually solving real-world problems out there other than prime numbers? Right now, the the primary real world problems that I see people are, are solving are they're using it as a tool to teach parallel programming to the next generation of developers. Uh, for example, there's a prof at West Point, Professor Suzanne J. Matthews, who's writing some great documentation on how to get started with Parallela and how to, she's got dot product examples that you might use in physics, you know, for vectors and that kind of stuff. And I see it mostly, it's mostly the real world uses I'm seeing are as, as a tool to teach parallel programming to the next generation of developers. I think it could be useful for driving robotics, and I haven't seen anybody doing that yet. And I think it's because the people who know robotics don't know parallel programming, and the people who know parallel programming don't know robotics. But I think there's a way to bring those together. Then it, it'll be yeah. perfect. You could yeah. make like an octopus robot because yeah. octopuses, <laughs> I'm a little obsessed with octopuses, they have like a very distributed nervous system. So each tentacle can sort of think independently. So the Parallelo would make a great octopus robot. Oh! Well, yeah. if any of you figure that out, I am putting on a robots conference in August. So. Oh, in August. Where, uh, is it uh, an online? online. Yep. Oh, yes. I'm kind of annoyed with the acronym IoT because you see it all over the place, but now we all know what it means. There's a lot of uh, potential there. It feels kind of like the web in 1993, 1994. 
Yeah, but and, you, uh, you saying that it's kind of out there and people know what it is, people in the industry know what it is. Like, I, w- I, I go to a Toastmasters group every morning. In fact, I was there this morning. And we do a, se- a section called Table Topics where we just do impromptu one to two minute talking about whatever the uh, topics master gives you. So when I did it, I tried to explain what Internet of Things was and tried to explain to people what would you put a computer into and they were totally lost on it, both the concept and the term. What what were their backgrounds? The people in the audience? What? Oh, they're they're in all kinds of stuff: uh, concrete or construction. A few of them are computer people. Uh, one of them's a hairdresser. But yeah, it it just went over just about everybody's head. Yeah. Okay. But you know what? Explain the web to someone in ninety three or ninety four. Yeah. You have the same phenomenon. Exactly. So. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there there's plenty of time to be an early adopter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's one of the things we'll talk about at Windy City Things this year. The people that we've got involved with that. One of our partners with that is an organization in Chicago called Blue 1647. And they're doing amazing things, teaching kids about Arduinos. And, you know, they're doing Arduinos for hardware and they're doing uh, Java and Minecraft for software. And they're introducing this to kids like pre-teens and all that. So they're working with us on uh, the uh, youth program for Windy City Things. So that's... um yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot to learn in that area. And there's stuff that still needs to be invented there. All right. Well, one more question that I have, and this is more about Internet of Things rather than uh, Parallela, but I, I guess it could be about Parallela, but mostly I'm just wondering where do you see Internet of Things going within the next, say, five years? And where does Parallela fit into that? I think where will the Internet of Things go in the next five years? Hard to say exactly five years out, but I think the direction we're heading in is a direction where these devices that we still call computers, they will disappear. And what I mean by that, it's kind of like when you look at an automobile. You know, if you ask the, uh, the, the average person on the street, you know, how many motors do you have in your automobile? Some, someone might say one. You know, you're under the hood, you got a motor. But when you think about it, you've got the, the engine under your hood. You also have a motor for each of your power windows. So that's four more right there. Under the hood, rarely are fans, rarely are cooling fans driven by fan belts anymore. Those are typically driven by an electric motor. So, you know, that's six. You have a motor for your sunroof. You have motor for the oscillating fan for your HVAC that's in there. But we don't think about those because they're so embedded in the system that they all of those motors have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I think that with IoT, when we know IoT is really taken off, a lot of these you know, single board computers or their descendants will have disappeared to where we won't even think of them, you know, and it's already started. You look at your TVs. I've got this, um, you know, the, the LCD TVs that are sold in stores now. Typically, they'll have a Linux computer inside of them. You know, oh, yeah. they'll have a Linux computer running the Netflix software and running the Amazon software and all that stuff. And they'll have uh, Ethernet on there. So I think w- the direction we're headed in is one, the, these devices, they will disappear in consumer devices. Two, I think you'll see more IoT in what they call the dull to normal industries, just basic stuff that we all need every day. An example would be what Amazon is doing in warehouses. Amazon uh, hired a company called Kiva to do robotics in their warehouse, and they ended up buying Kiva to do robotics in their warehouse. You know, they bought the company, and it's a very basic function. These are robots that move move the the different items that need to be packed around to the 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 pick workers, the the people who pick and pack, 
And that's Internet of Things right there. But it's not the, you know, the whiz bang stuff that we think about. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a flying drone. It's not a submarine, you know, the cool, you know, uh, Jetsons stuff, right? It's, uh, it's dull to normal. And so I think there's a couple of trends. One, the, the IoT devices themselves will start to disappear. They'll be so embedded that we don't think of them anymore. And two, we'll see more stuff happening with in the dull to normal areas. So that's what I say. What do you think? What do you think about in five years? What do the three of you think five years from now, IoT? I mean, I, I went to CES last month and they had computers in all kinds of stuff. Um, most of it isn't ready for mass market and there's so much education you have to put into it for people to really get used to it. I mean, they had pots and pans that would, you, you tell it, I'm putting olive oil in and it would, you know, calculate how many calories you'd added to the, the meal because it could tell by the weight change how much olive oil you'd added or things like that. I mean, it was just, you know, it was kind of mind boggling. A lot of things are moving into the home. Um, there's a, there was a company there that had basically, uh, moving the cloud back onto your home network and then you access it like a regular cloud, you know, but the, the physical hard drive that holds your data is in your house. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of different things that people are connecting up. There were, I think Under Armour had shirts, underwear, pants, socks. Uh, there were a zillion shoe companies with chips in them. And what I think is going to happen is that, it's going to get to the point where, yeah, we, we don't even, we can't even conceive of like these mundane objects without uh, having them connected some way and giving us some information about our world. Under Armour is putting chips into their shirts and their gear. Yeah, they had prototypes at CES. Wow. I'm hoping, I'm hoping I, that what happens is that we will separate out things that are practical from things that are possible. Um, yeah. Because you can, yes, you can put a chip in anything, but do I really need to know how much olive oil I just added to my pan? Do I need my pan to be a sensor? Probably not. So I look forward to intelligently adding intelligence and not just doing it because we can. Yeah, the hard part is figuring out whether it's useful. Yeah, we went through that with personal computers too, right? Early days of personal computers. What was the example they 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 used to use? Oh, you'll be able to store your recipes on your personal computer at home and, your, and everyone will store their recipes on their home computer. You know, but <laughs> that's because that's all we can think about. We'll, Store it on a three thousand dollar device that's as far away <laughs> from your kitchen as possible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know. Get a longer cord for that screen. <laughs> you know, so we're we're still in the put recipes on your computer stage with IoT. I think yeah. the other thing that we have to solve is that when we have all these smart sensors all around us, how are we going to interface with them? Because I think a phone is a terrible tool for interfa interfacing with a variety of sensors and with the models that we currently have where there's an app for every sensor, that's kind of ridiculous. And our laptops aren't really well set up to, to handle networks or meshes of sensors either. Um, so there's going to be some serious UI work mm -hmm. to make all of the sensor data centralized, controllable, and manipulable you know, from a single source in a way that makes some kind of sense. Because if I have to download the Under Armour app and I have to download the iron frying pan app and all these other apps, it's going to be a big mess and no one's going to want to use it. Yeah. Yep. So essentially someone who has what would be the equivalent of a, a marketplace for all this traffic could do really well. That, that may be what Apple's trying to do with, what do they call it? iHome or at home or something like that, that they're doing with IOT, something along those yeah. lines. So, yeah. Well, they have iHome. Is it iHome? They also have iHealth or Apple yes. Health or HealthKit. 
health home, kit. Yes, health kit, kit and home kit. That's what it is. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and you, you've got other systems that also take advantage of a lot of this stuff on Android and what have you. But they also introduced another one. I don't remember, but it also had something to do with IoT. Anyway, so yeah, you've got all these different things. You know, you've got Watch Kit, which connects to your Apple Watch, which you know both has sensors and display on it. And I mean, there there's so many different possibilities, and uh, you know, some of these capabilities really could benefit from having parallel computing, and some of them probably wouldn't. So it's it's also interesting to look at it and say, okay, so when we can get a parallela that's the size of a penny instead of the size of a credit card, what does that mean, and where do we put that? Yeah, true, true. the The applications will come. I think the bottom line is we it it needs to we need to get to the point where it's it's easy enough for people with all kinds of backgrounds to play with this stuff, mm-hmm. and then we'll see it happen. You know, like it it happened with the web the. When HTML came out, that came that that was a language that was very accessible to people from a variety of backgrounds. You didn't take a whole lot of time to learn that, and I think that's part of the reason why the web took off. If it was just if we only had computer scientists driving the web, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are right now. No, it's true. I mean, there were there were a lot of economic and business interests that funded the growth of the internet. But I think yeah. fundamentally, the internet was built by amateurs. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, true, true. And, you know, we've seen that with all, you know, all technologies across the board. You look at the early automobiles. You had to be an enthusiast about gasoline-powered engines and, you know, want to fix it yourself and all of that stuff. And But when when they became accessible to the masses, that's when somebody figured out, oh, maybe we should create an interstate highway system. And maybe all cars shouldn't be the same. Maybe we should have some trucks and some motorcycles and maybe something in between like an SUV. And all of that comes when you start making all this accessible to the masses. But if only the enthusiasts who are doing it just for the sake of doing it are doing it, uh, you know, in the case of automobiles, we'd still be driving Model Ts, right? Yeah, because it's it's the many people, the amateurs who are going to find out where it's really useful. True. Yep. True that. True. All right. Well, I think it's probably about time to wrap up. This has been really fun to talk about, though. Let's go ahead and get to the picks. Coraline, do you want to start us off? Sure, I can start us off. Okay, so I have one pick today. Um, it is an article by Tom Stewart, who is a great speaker. And if you have not seen him talk, you're missing out. The article is a transcript of a talk he gave, and it's called Refactoring Ruby with Monads. So um, I'm a little late to the Monad party. I confessed that I was not really clear on what a monad was, and I'd heard some really horrible explanations of what it is involving burritos and spacesuits, and it never made any damn sense to me. And uh, he writes that for every person that raves about them, there's another person asking what in the world they are, and a third person writing a confusing tutorial about them. So it's uh, they're complex and an abstract idea, and it's hard to understand how they're relevant. But his article is very pragmatic, and he basically approaches the explanation as a refactoring of some Ruby code. Um, and he walks through this refactoring step by step by step um, using really straightforward design patterns. And at the end, it ends up that the refactoring was using a monad. Um, but he never says, he never defines what the monad is. He never says that's what he's setting out to do. It's just that in the end, through the refactoring process, you have built a monad. And so you get this really great intuitive understanding of exactly what it is and its benefit from a really practical perspective, which I found really handy. So that is my pick for this week. Oh, Jessica, I should say that we were inspired at my work at Health Finch 
by your work's reading group, your paper reading group. So cool. we're picking blog posts and or papers every week to do a discussion on and refactoring review with Monads was our first pick. Very cool. We had Tom Stewart on the podcast about 120 episodes ago. So if people want to check that out, I put a link in the show notes. Very cool. cool. Very cool. And it's also somewhat germane to what we were talking about. I mean, it's his book, Understanding Computation, and it goes into some of the, the basics of some of the concepts that we were talking about with how a computer works. So anyway, Jessica, Excellent. what are your picks? I'm going to pick learning to play the piano. I've been working on this for about two months. I mean, I did it for a couple of years, so I knew how to read music like back as a kid. But learning piano has been really fascinating, especially in some ways that, well, like everything in my life, I find the parallels to software. For instance, right now, just last week, I thought I could play Brahms Lullaby, like the arrangement in the intro Alfred's Level 1 piano book. And I played it for my friend who's a master pianist. And then he showed me a couple subtleties of phrasing, like how the first note of the phrase should be the heaviest, and then you gradually uh, get lighter, and that like makes a continuity in the smoothness. And how the accompaniment on a waltz should be heavy on the first note and extremely light on the other notes, which is really hard. And now there were these songs that I thought I knew how to play, and I don't know how to play them at all. And I can't play them anymore because I've learned a whole nother level of what it means to play them correctly. And that is exactly like learning how to program. And you think just because you can get the computer to do what you wanted it to do, that your program is right. And then you learn about readability and then you learn about abstraction. And then you try to go back and modify that program. And you're like, oh my God, I knew nothing about programming. And it just gets harder and harder the more I know about it. So your now, standards are raised because you're exposed <laughs> to this. Your standards are raised. Yes. And every time I learn something new, I need to go back and learn the song again. Just like every time I learn a new programming technique or principle or just ideas of how to make my code more clear, I feel like I need to rewrite my code again. So at least it's not just me. It's not just software. That's why I pick learning piano. Is it, uh, yeah, it's giving me that, that perspective. All right. Oh, cool. Um, I've got a couple of picks. The first one is, this was actually mentioned, I think, on on Ruby Rogue's Parlay. Uh, it's this BOGO seat. I actually have video so I can kind of hold it up, or at least the seat part of it. But it's just one pole with the seat on the top. And the reason I got it is because I typically re record three podcasts on Tuesday. And then I have a regular call on Wednesday and then two more podcasts on Wednesday. And on those days, by the time I get to the last episode that I'm recording that day, I am pretty worn out. Um, and I don't really feel like standing. So what I wind up doing is I wind up just uh, sitting on this. Now you don't really sit on it like a regular chair. You kind of place it behind your rear end and then lean on it. And uh, it takes some pressure off of my legs and uh, it allows me to get through the rest. But I feel like it's important for me to be upright at least part of the day. And since I moved my podcasting rig over to the standing desk, it kind of became important for me to be able to stand at it for long periods of time. So I'm not using it right now because this is the first podcast I'm recording today, but it's definitely something that I'm really liking. One other thing that I just want to mention is that this episode should be coming out uh, the same week I'm going to be in Amsterdam. So if you're going to be in Amsterdam on Wednesday the 17th, 
I'm going to do a meetup that night. I haven't quite figured out where, but it'll be somewhere in town. So watch Twitter. I'm also going to send out emails and let people know if you're subscribed to any of the podcast mailing lists. Uh, and you can get on those uh, on the website. It's just the mailing list to get you the episodes. Um, I've also got the top 10 episodes for Ruby Rogues that I'm going to be adding to uh, allow people to get those via email, but I haven't quite finished that uh, campaign yet. So anyway, those are my picks. Ray, do you have some picks for us? Two picks. One was uh, the video. One of the videos that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast was the the video by Rob Pike, one of the creators of the Go language. Concurrency is not parallelism. He's uh, a, a great speaker and a great explainer of the difference between the two. And he does some cool things with cartoon gophers in the video. So you got to catch that. Uh, my second pick is a very old paper, a paper from 1995 about building parallel programs. And it's available the entire, uh, I, I call it a paper. It's actually a book. Uh, the entire book, the entire text of the book is available online. Uh, it's called Designing and Building Parallel Programs, and it's by Ian Foster. Uh, Dr. Foster is at Argonne National Labs here in Chicago, and he explores what we need to know in order to write parallel programs. And what what's exciting about it is that even though it's old, you know, the mathematics that underlies all of this stuff we're doing with parallelism, it's been around forever. You know, we may be just discovering some of it, but it's been around forever. So those are my two picks. All right, cool. If people want to follow up with you, find out more about you, um, also probably about Parallela, what, where do they go? What do they do? If you go to rayhightower.com, a couple of the featured articles on my blog right there are about Parallela, and those are the there are links that will take you right there. And there's a search feature that will take you there. If you do a search on Parallela, it, all of the Parallela articles will come up. So you can go to rayhightower.com, and that will lead you to some other resources related to parallelism, parallelism, uh, including how to pronounce it. Uh, there, it will give you all kinds of resources about that. So check out rayhightower.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. And thank you for having me, Rogues. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I, thank you I, for coming twice. Yeah. Yep. I have mad respect for what you do. I listen to you guys a lot, and I, I'm honored to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for awesome. coming. It was hope an to awesome see you at a, Yeah, I hope to see you at a Chicago Ruby meetup sometime. Yeah, today. yeah. See you soon. All right. Be well. Thanks. All right, let's wrap it up. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 